Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Hello, welcome to The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. I'm Buddy Arnheim, your host. And today we are going to be sitting down and talking with none other than Colin Wallace, the newest partner at Lobby Capital. And I could not be more thrilled to sit down with Colin and chat about Colin's upbringing, his background, his incredible entrepreneurial successes, his investing prowess, and anything else that comes up in between. So Colin, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Super exciting. Not only am I excited about the podcast, I'm excited about you joining Lobby Capital. I'm excited about being able to call you a partner. It's so freaking fun. It's crazy. It's, it's who would have thought? It's who would have uh, thought? Although the universe works, it is. But but you know we've we've now been spending a lot of time together over the last six months or so, and it could not feel more comfortable. Like it's like you know just a nice warm blanket that just sort of so many symmetries and so many kind of common perspectives with yeah. all four of us. It's so true. Yeah, I remember the first time meeting David. I think he was teaching in Startup Garage and we were teaching together. I think, you know, that sometimes you get this intuition about people and I think sometimes there's a perception that there's no logic behind it. And I would almost say it's like logic that it's hard to articulate, right? And so anyways, that intuition was there. You know, on the podcast, we talked about, you know, some of the best decisions being decisions that almost come subconsciously. They're not, they're not completely subconscious because they're built on a lot of research and knowledge gathering as we were just talking about. Totally. And, but ultimately the final decision kind of is so comfortable. It's so right that it sort of leaps out of you. And I think that's, you know, at least that's how we felt as we were kind of exploring you joining the partnership. It just was like, why not? Like that would be crazy yeah. not to have it happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. So you'll find that one of the random things I do is I, I tend to read white papers just cause I'm curious, like where's the world heading to. And there's always this really big gap between sort of what, where technology's at and like where the market's ready to adopt. And, uh, one of the papers I read was about what portion of your brain is used for what, you know, different tasks. Mm. And, you know, come to find out that this massive amount of your brain is being used for all of these like subconscious, you know, processes. And I'm sort of fudging the numbers a little bit. I don't remember exactly, but I would go through this exercise with founders where they do these interviews with, you know, a potential customer and, you know, the customer would say, oh, well, the reason why I did that is because of X or because of Y. And I would say, well, you can't believe them because in most cases they don't know why they're yeah, doing the thing yeah. that they're doing. And I would give them this quiz and I'd say, okay, you know, the average human over the course of, you know, one minute, how many thoughts do you think they have? And people say, well, well it's, you know, 5,000, 7,000, 8,000. And if I remember correctly, the number was roughly 11,000 like, really? thoughts that you have over the course of a minute. Wow. So then the question was, okay, well, how many of those do you think are actually conscious? Like, I'm going to go outside now, or I'm hungry, I'm going to go get some food. And it turns out it's about 30. 30, 30 out of, of those 11,000 11, are, are like you being conscious and yeah, saying, wow. I want to do this thing. And the rest of them are like, oh, my blood vessels need to be dilated and I need to blink. And like, oh, don't forget to produce some more cells in this like hair follicle. It's all of that. It's like the massive amount of computing your brain. So a lot of the things that you're doing you don't really understand exactly why you're doing them, right? It's sort of like built into your sort of core operating systems. You know, the two thoughts that leap to mind as you say that. One is, how the heck did they measure 11,000? Like, like, where did that go? I don't even, I don't even remember yet, if that's exactly the number. I'll have to go but, find the paper. No, but, it's cool. <laughs> but then the other thing is I started at my wife's, you know, strong urging. I started meditating about six months ago. All right, just, and, and it's not, that's I'm smart. not... I am not the guy that's going to ever advocate a meditation. <laughs> like that is not my personality, I'm not that but I, guy. but I'm willing to try anything once. And, yeah. and so I started meditating and, and this instructor that she introduced me to was like, okay, here's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get literally no thoughts in your head. And I'm like, Oh, that, how hard could that be? Yeah. But then you try this so meditation hard. thing and it's like, 
It's impossible, okay? <laughs> there's, there's no way I can get zero thoughts going. So I can now understand and appreciate yeah. the practice of meditation because I think it's it's exactly that. It's trying to unravel all those 11,000 thoughts totally. in a minute to get totally. them to... Uh, and and I, from that, you do feel... I will say, for the now I'm starting to sound like a zealot, but there is something very relaxing and therapeutic about taking what is it 10 minutes a day and trying to do that it's it's actually pretty remarkable i think that's right and you know the closest i've gotten is like convenient distractions like someone poking with needles or like working about your breathing or like trying not to get run over by a car or on the bike you know it's like these moments where you have one thought right. <laughs> it's not right. zero thoughts but right. it's like maybe one or two right. that's a pretty meaningful contrast mm -hmm. to the you know regular operating so i'll take that for now yep yeah <laughs> all right so let's do this we're going to ultimately talk at the end about the way you think about investing because that's one of the things that was so attractive to us as you join the partnership how aligned our collective approach is towards investing but before we get to all that Let's spin that clock backwards, the chronological clock backwards, and get to know sort of a young Colin. So first, where did you grow up? So I was born in New Hampshire in mm. a Hitchcock Hospital at And Dartmouth. how far away is that from Hornick? Like, you guys are both New Hampshire boys. Not very far at all. You know, my parents were in grad school at Dartmouth. You know, I was born... I think three days after graduation. So clearly they wow. weren't studying as much as right. they should have been. Naughty parents. <laughs> Mom and dad. Yeah, so we were there for a little bit. What's um, amazing is you're the third of five. So yeah. they weren't just busy. They had two right? like, in business school. Well done, in, Mom and dad. In the Arctic fridges of New Hampshire. After that, uh, my father got a job at IBM. Uh, selling mainframes down in in Baltimore. So he grew up in and around Baltimore. Talk about your path, your high school, and, and ultimately how you decided yeah. to go to Georgia Tech. And sure, so so uh, I was going to public school like my whole life, and you know I got an opportunity to go to a private school in Baltimore and play uh, lacrosse. Mm. And you know it's funny, me and my three older brothers we had tested to go into this private school. It's called Gilman. When I was going into first grade and all really? three of us got in and the school said, well, look, we can't give you a scholarship for all of the kids. We will give you one scholarship and you can either split it across all three or you can send one child. And my parents had to make this decision of, do we send one kid? We know we can't afford to, you know, have one scholarship and send the other two. And so their decision was to send none. And we put us all in the same playing field and so on. And so we all ended up in public school and we went through that process and I had a really tough time actually. In and this school. is this downtown Baltimore. Is this like at this point we had moved into the suburbs. We okay. had moved into a place called Ellicott City. And where the schools known to be the schools high were, quality, <laughs> medium. The schools were known to be high quality, but it came out later that they were kind of cherry picking scores. So they would have these standardized tests hmm. where they were effectively optional and they would pick certain students to take them. And so the scores would be very high, but the schools were not know, a mixed bag. Like, right. And, uh, you know, I was really bored in school. Ended up going all the way through middle school and public school. Get into my freshman year of high school. I'm in public school. Finish that year, top of my class, and really still bored. Like, I think I was in the top math classes, like, for my school, like, that they offered. And I'm still, like, relatively bored and I was playing lacrosse at that time too. And so I had a great year in lacrosse, like, you know, all county and, you know, all these different accolades. And I come home and said, mom and dad, I'm in the wrong school. I got to go somewhere else. And my mom says, you know, hey, look, I'll, we'll support you. You got to get a scholarship, but like, we will help you fill out the application and so on. When you're doing that process, the first thing they do is they standardize test you. And so you got to go through that whole thing. And so this next standardized test that I had coming up was actually at Gilman. Hmm. And so I went to Gilman to do this standardized test and I get there. My parents dropped me off it's early some Saturday morning to do that. And I'm completely lost. It's like a massive campus. Right. There's like seven buildings. They have no idea where anything is, where I'm supposed to be. And so I find this gentleman and ask him, excuse me, do you know where this hall is? I'm supposed to be doing this testing. And so on. He's, so yeah, sure. I'll walk you over there. It turns out this guy, he's the headmaster of Gilman. And he's talking to me like as we're walking over and he's like, oh, you play lacrosse? Yeah, I played at Princeton. And, and you know, and uh, you know, you seem like a great kid. Like you ever think about applying to Gilman? 
And I said, well, you know, I'm probably only going to be able to go to a school where I can get a scholarship and just a lot of consideration. So on. he says, well, here's my card. Tell your parents to call me. Amazing. And my parents called him and he said, well, let's see if we can make this thing work. Ended up doing well in the interview and they offered me a spot there. Mm. And so, you know, I showed up and uh, I was ready to play. And, you know, lacrosse at Gilman is just a whole nother level. Is it? Like, I was I, really good in the public school system. I was good in private school. And the team, when I got to Gilman as a sophomore, I mean, our seniors and juniors were basically the entire starting lineup of the Ivy Leagues. Yeah. When I was applying to schools, originally I was kind of like, okay, I'll play lacrosse at Penn if I can. I'll follow mom and Great. dad's footsteps, lacrosse, you know. And I ended up not getting in to University of Pennsylvania. I applied for the Jerome Fisher program to do, uh, I think, the joint engineering and uh, Wharton. Yeah, M&T. Yeah. Oh, that's a and uh, I didn't get in. And so, you know, at the same time, I got into Georgia Tech. And so, you know, the lacrosse coach. Have you ever been down to Atlanta? I've or? never been to Atlanta. Yeah, wow. Not once. And, you know, it was right when that Jermaine Dupree song came out, the Welcome to Atlanta. Yeah, and it, yeah. Oh, I went down for a recruiting trip. You know, recruiting is another one of those things where mm. it's like the view of campus and the city that you get as a recruit is so different than the reality. I mean, you would have thought that Georgia Tech was like University of Miami, the way I got treated when <laughs> I got down there. I mean, just parties and clubs and Waffle House. And mm. I was 17 uh, at the time. And it just was just the coolest. Like, I just thought it was the coolest place ever. I came back. Was yeah. like, I'm going to Georgia right. Tech, yeah, done. which I Deal. guess is the point, right? That is like right. That, that is the goal. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up going there. I enrolled as electrical engineer. Mm. I did not love it. And I still missed the art element. I still miss that like, Interesting. creativity piece. Yeah. There's not a ton. Did you get to take any electives? Very in? few. So Georgia Tech is pretty strict about prescribing sort of like what you need mm -hmm. in order to meet requirements for the degree. And at some point I realized that there were other majors there that I could take that would let you have a little more creativity around your classes. And so one of them was building construction. And so I go and petition mom and dad, hey, can I switch my major to building construction? That was absolute no. We're not sending you to Georgia Tech to you know be a contractor. And so the other option was mechanical engineering where they had drafting classes and all these other things. And so the compromise with my father was to do both so that if I wanted to add mechanical engineering as a second degree, then I could do that. And that was, you know, sort of the wow. best compromise. Yeah. So my options for uh, electives became even smaller because the overlap yeah, between these really two is really play. tiny. Yeah. So I ended up dropping EE right before I graduated. Like mm. I think maybe three months, four months before I graduated at that point, you know, I was off to the races. Like right. I had great grades. My parents weren't so worried about me. Right. And so I have a mechanical engineering degree and a whole bunch of unused EE credits hmm. from Georgia Tech. And then would you graduate college? And then did you go, you didn't go straight to B school. You started. No, I started trying to find myself. Yeah. It's probably the best way to describe it. So when I was a senior in school, I was sitting in a class. I had a mandatory class for mechanical engineering called uh, pulp and paper making. It was like mm. literally how to chew up trees and turn it into paper. It was a mandatory class. Mm. And right after this class, I'd have lacrosse practice every day. And so this lecture was three hours long. And so if you didn't eat during that lecture and you had practice and you're running wind sprints and all that for another three hours, you were just going to be a mess. And so I ended up getting to class late. I didn't have any food. So I text message a buddy and I said, hey, can you bring me some food? And we'd just gotten this firehouse subs, you know, had come to campus maybe a few months before. Mm. So I asked, you know, hey, can you bring me a firehouse sub? And, you know, yeah. I'll pay for yours if you, you do it. And, and my buddy says, you know, hey, I'm already late. Like I can't go to firehouse to bring you a sandwich. But I thought to myself, like, what a great idea. Like you should be able to text message and have people bring you food. <laughs> right. And this is like 2006. Right. So at that time, it's a pretty novel idea. And so I start working on this concept called a uh, text order go. This is, tells you my marketing prowess at the time. <laughs> uh, you literally would text you know, for food and someone bring it to you and deliver it in class. And I started writing a patent for this idea and started building the product for it. And the way it works, 
it's written for BlackBerry OS. This is oh my again, God, dating that's myself. Totally awesome. It was an applet that would run on your phone and it would take your order and it would convert it to binary. And mm. then it would text message that binary to a server and the server would decode the binary and then fax an order to a restaurant. Huh. And the logic was like, People didn't have data in 2006. Right. It wasn't like you just used a data plan. Like No, you, were scared. you used it sparingly. Totally. But everyone had text messages. Right. So you just turn it into a bunch of ones and zeros and huh. send that to a server. And that's how we would communicate. And so it turned out this was a horrible business like <laughs> for classrooms. Professors hated it. Students were poor. Like There's just a lot of issues with it. But it worked really well in stadiums and arenas hmm. where people like didn't want to wait in line for hot dogs and hamburgers and that kind of thing. And so, you know, started working on this thing and then sort of the world fell apart. 2007, like financial crisis yeah, starts, GFC. like job market starts getting really tight and things just start looking really cloudy. And so I completely shift gears. I'm just like, this is just fun time. It's not a real like thing. I need to go find a real job. And so I end up getting a job for Lexmark International, mm. uh, basically in their hardware division where... It turns out that you needed somebody who both understood hardware, the mechanical engineering side, and the electrical boxes and sort of the electrical elements of, of the uh, printers. And then also all the manufacturing was in China. And I was one of the few people that spoke Chinese. And when did you start studying Chinese? Was that at Georgia Tech oh, yeah. or, or Gilman? <laughs> totally jumped over that. Yeah, so it was at Georgia Tech. It so, was. Okay, so Georgia created this policy where they were using the lottery money to send kids to school you know, for free, right? Give them full scholarship called Hope Scholarship. Hmm. And the requirements for it was that you needed to have a 3.0 or more in high school before matriculating to college. What they didn't anticipate was that many instructors were going to basically change the grades like for kids in order to get them, them out to college, right? Because no one wants to be the teacher. That, like, right, they gave them the BC, to right. Totally. And so the population was way higher than what they were expecting huh. for colleges. So they started trying to like get kids to go to school elsewhere. And they created all these partnerships, sort of abroad programs with yeah. different schools in different countries where the allure was go to this other program. We are not going to charge you anymore for tuition. You can pay in-state tuition the same way you would here. Hmm. What they didn't realize is kids like myself who were coming from Maryland and like New York and wherever else, we weren't on in-state tuition anyway. We were right. paying $15,000 yeah. a semester to go to school and the Georgia kids were paying like 1200 And so by going to school overseas, we could pay the $1,200 and we were still getting scholarship money from the lacrosse team and so on, like based on, Neat. you know, some of the other yeah. expenses that we had. So you could actually get paid to go to school. So myself and many of my out-of-state lacrosse teammates, we would basically go abroad every semester we weren't in season. And so one of the years, I think in 05, we went to China and we were in Shanghai for I don't know, four months or five Fun. months. Yeah, we started learning Chinese and we took thermodynamics and econ and a whole bunch of other classes. Was it through like a, an affiliated university? Yeah, or? it was at Jiaotong Dashui, which is Shanghai University, basically, which is probably like the Yale of China. I mean, yeah. it's like, I didn't realize it at the time. I mean, this is like one of the top schools. I mean, certainly the top three schools hmm. in China. Neat. And so like, not only do you learn Chinese and you have this like wonderful experience because I know China just seemed interesting. I always liked Kung Fu movies, which is a weird, yeah. like that would be a reason why. <laughs> and so anyways, when I graduated from college, you know, Lexmark was looking for someone that looked a lot like me. And so I ended up taking that role and I would spend half of my time in Lexington, Kentucky, like sort of doing designs for uh, different printer boxes and inkjet printers. And then I would fly over to Hong Kong and Hong I would Kong. stay there as we would do builds. And I had a factory that was basically responsible for in Xinxi, China, just outside of Shenzhen. And so I would commute across the border. We'd go and stay in the factory and debug machines Mate. and like injection molding issues and all that kind of stuff. And our partner was uh, Foxconn and Foxlink, like who would go on to create the iPhone and yeah. sort of like build. Yeah, so a lot of those people I, I worked with actually became executives like in Foxconn and producing the iPhone. And really amazing it's like experience. such a small world. And that, it's interesting. So that, you, you had the engineering background, but this is obviously bringing you into this sort of tech economy with kind of that crazy, interesting international flair. Would you would go back and forth, like how much time would you spend in China and how good did your language skills get? I would spend a month to two months in China each time. Yeah, wow. And 
my language skills got to be pretty good. You know, language is largely like memorization with a little bit of like art. And I was always really good at memorizing. So that part worked pretty well. The challenge is that Chinese you're learning is very specific to like manufacturing. Mm. So you'd learn things like, oh, the tolerance is off on this part, but you wouldn't know how to say like my soup is too hot, you know? Interesting. And so yeah. it wasn't until later that I actually started to learn. Rounding you know, it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> is it Mandarin? Was it Mandarin? It's Mandarin. It's Mandarin. Yep. Yeah, it was called a putonghua, which is sounds kind of like you're talking to a pirate. It's like a very harsh form of Chinese, but it's like the traditional Chinese. Mm. My wife speaks Cantonese, and uh, when she hears it, it's like you can see her face kind of like wince up. It's like, a, little, a little more rough. It's like, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like a like a heavy New York accent. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have not studied Chinese. I, I speak Italian, but I have taken one class in Chinese just to sort of try to understand yeah. And what's so amazing to me is the intonation, like that one word, depending on how you end the sort of <laughs> the, the, the intonation yeah. defines the word. So how you turn Western ears to understand and hear that is amazing to me. I, I think it's got to be one of the hardest languages to learn. Yeah. So Cantonese, like for my wife, they have nine tones. Nine? Uh, traditional sort of Putonghua. Uh, has five. I think the big breakthrough for me was realizing we have all of those tones in English. Hmm. We just don't necessarily pay attention to them. Hmm. Like if I were to say, oh, it's very different than to say, oh. Right. Right. Like you know the difference between those two things, and it's all because of that tone. Huh. And so each of the five tones in Chinese actually maps to something like that we would say, like, what? Like that is third tone in huh. Chinese, or oh, that's second tone, right? Like it's sort of finding these parallels and it's interesting because again all these things map to even what we do today like in lobby where it's effectively pattern matching in a lot of ways it's like what's new about this ai thing that's not that new mm -hmm. that was the same thing yes. with haze modems that was the same thing with transistors that was the same thing with the telegraph right like everyone says sort of each time it's different but each time it's kind of not right <laughs> it's kind of the same thing different players you know and it's interesting so this is kind of a leap but the more diversity of knowledge you gather Absolutely. the easier it is for you to pick those patterns and do the pattern matching so all you youngsters out there that are listening, because I know there's thousands of people listening <laughs> to this podcast, make sure that you have that hungry mind. Don't ever quell that, that hunger. Just sort of feed it. And to your point, it's not obvious how these pieces fit together. And so if you go into it saying like, oh, I want to go to China. How's that going to fit into my 10-year career plan? Right. I have no idea. Right. It doesn't but really matter. But it was super matter. interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. If nothing else, what you'll take away from it is some other opportunity to grow, right? Some new seam where you can expand into. And some of the best things and most impactful things I've learned came from those experiences where I wasn't chasing anything. You were just curious. I will say the folks that I view as the best venture capitalists, including our partner, David, who I think is amazing. There's no way you could have ever predicted that his computer music undergrad degree <laughs> would lead him to be sort of a you know Midas touch uh, venture capitalist. And I think I think it's this diversity of thinking and diversity of experiences totally. and this random walk that's in many regards random and yet it's constantly looking out for that next opportunity. Not thinking what's the final goal, but just what's the next step. Yep. Okay, so you kicked butt at Georgia Tech. Yeah. You were, you were a rock star athlete and <laughs> academic. You end up going to Lexmark. You have this incredible experience between Kentucky yeah. and Shanghai. How long did you stay there, and, and then what happened? So when I got there, my first week of work, they had a company-wide meeting, and they sat everyone down, and they announced that they were laying off a quarter of the company. Wow. This is like... Fall of 2007. Right before so the GFC. Yeah, so it was like right like right when it was starting, like you were starting to see things dry up, mm -hmm. like orders were starting to dry up, and they could kind of see it at the corporate level. And I remember my manager sitting down with me and saying, well, look, we're not sure how everyone's going to reshuffle. And so what we'd like you to do is kind of stay put, just kind of stay busy for a little while while we figure out where all the new hires are going to go. And that process ended up being six months almost. So for six months, I Were was you bored? Were you showing up, doing nothing. And so I started working 
on this idea again of like text order go and hmm. like I thought, okay, sitting in a lab all day, I might as well program a little bit. And so I started writing more on these applications. I started refining like some of the methodologies. I went and filed this patent, which my mom was encouraging me for months and months and months to do. And hmm. finally she said, I'll pay for it. If you, if you file it, I will pay for it. And I ended up filing this patent and I needed someone to test it. And so I went down the street to uh, University of Kentucky and I was able to finagle a little meeting with the mayor of the city hmm. through this guy, Jim Host, who was one of the founders of IMG. I don't know if you, IMG, yeah, sure. yeah. So J Jim Host or Host Communications was basically the first company that recognized that there was value in selling advertising in college sports. And so what they would do is they would go to a university and they'd say, well, there's a lot of volatility in whether or not you can get sponsors. Why don't you sell me the rights to broadcast all of your basketball games? And then I will take the responsibility for reselling them. Mm -hmm. So Jim would come in and he'd buy the rights, you know, from University of Kentucky or Ohio State or you name it for, you know, two million or five million bucks for 10 years. And then he'd turn around and sell them for a hundred million dollars, you know, to Coca-Cola, Russell Sports and you name it. And he just, you know, just Killed created that. the whole industry, right? He was the guy in Lexington, Kentucky. And so... <laughs> I'll never forget. Jim says, okay, you want to meet with me? Uh, his assistant sells me this. You need to come meet Jim at 5 a.m. And so I'm in like this three-piece suit in <laughs> downtown Lexington, Kentucky, waiting outside of his office. His assistant lets me in and he's sitting at his desk. You know, he's reading the newspaper. He's probably been up for an hour at that point. And uh, I start pitching him on like why, you know, University of Kentucky should try all this thing. And like, yeah, I really appreciate his help and so on. And his desk has nothing it's just a pad of paper and a telephone. It's it. No computer, no nothing. Huh. And, uh, you know, Jim proceeds to tell me that this technology will never work because telephones aren't able to communicate across carriers. And so, you know, you'll never be able to send, you know, order and just doesn't understand how this will possibly work and doesn't see it. However, he says, I like you and I'm willing to make an introduction for you to Rupp Arena, which was University of Kentucky's basketball facility. So I go in and give this pitch and I say, look, just try it in the student section. Like right. no one has to know. I just want to, you know, see if it works. And I think this might actually be really valuable. I run this demo for them live, like in that office, you know, where I have a bunch of food, you know, sort of brought to them and so on. Everyone thinks this is great. And so we end up running this pilot in uh, the University of Kentucky student section. And then about two weeks later, I get this call from the team at Rupp Arena and they say, you know, Colin, we've uh, we had some complaints about the solution. And I'm like, oh, crap. I mean, I'm at work, by the way. I'm at Lexmark when I get this call. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, I could just like pop out. I'm like in the bathroom taking this call. And they said, well, you know, we've had complaints from our season ticket holders that they can't do this. And only the students Good can. Problem. They don't even pay for their, their seats. <laughs> right? So how fast can we expand? And so we started expanding into that facility. And so I was in this weird spot with Lexmark where... I was kind of doing my job because I needed to, but also like wasn't super passionate about it. And I was really interested with some of the, the sort of heat that I was getting from what was called text order go at the time and later became fan go, like fans going to mm -hmm. you know, get food and so yeah. on. And uh, if we fast forward 2009, uh, Lexmark decides to do another round of, of layoffs. And so I was actually part. So of you that. were with the, you. You did this on the side I for was two years. Running both for two yeah, years. Yeah, wow. I kind of knew. Did I you was ever hire be, anybody to help you? I did. Yeah, I had a whole team. I good job. <laughs> I had a whole bunch of people, and I would literally I'd show up to work at five or six a.m. I'd work till like two in the afternoon, and then I'd go home and I'd work on this until I basically passed out at my desk. <laughs> and I did that for you know a year and a half. Great. Where it came to a head was I got an interview request for one of the local news stations and we were trying to keep growing. So I'm like going to go to this interview and so on. And it's six o'clock in the morning. And I'm assuming like no one's up at Lexmark at that time. Like people kind of casually stroll in around nine o'clock, nine 30, 10 o'clock. It's like that kind of work environment. And of course, the day that this broadcast is supposed to air, there is a snowstorm. Hmm. And so all of the schools are delayed Plugs. in their opening while they like plow the roads and so on. And so the whole early morning coverage is on school openings and closings. So what they do is they push the broadcast until basically like oh. 8, 30, 9 o'clock, right when everybody's like getting their kids up and like eating breakfast and so on. So everybody so, heard like, it. Like prime time. 
walk into the office and everyone's like, hey, saw you uh, on TV this morning. Like, cool idea. Right. And you know, my boss, you know, was, he's kind of like, oh, I didn't realize you were working in a whole nother company. Like, while you were also supposed to be working for us here. I, and I thought like, oh, okay, this is probably the beginning of the, the end. Tell, right. Probably better that way. But uh, yeah, two weeks later, I got the pink slip. And thanks to President Obama, when I left, I got health care for 18 months. And, you know, I got a severance. At that point, they, what they were doing is they were giving you one month of salary for every year of service, but a minimum of six months. Great. Yeah. So I ended up getting Generous. a bunch of cash and I plowed that all into the business, raised some more cash. And then from there... We ended up getting an offer to be in Accelerate Labs, which became Techstars in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And that's what got me out of Kentucky and into Chicago. And I met uh, Sam Yegan there and Troy Hanikoff, and they sort of took me under their wing and showed me how to build a real business. We pivoted a whole bunch. We ended up testing, you know, not just stadiums and arenas, but also hotels, airports, casinos, and restaurants, which we hadn't huh. fully thought through at that point, but we knew it was going to be interesting. And it turned out that the restaurants started growing way faster than everything else. And so our plan for distribution was partnerships. That was kind of how we grew, right? In stadiums, we, we partnered with Centerplate and Aramark and Sodexo and with Marriott and like room service and hotels and Delta Airlines and the airports. And there was an early online ordering and menu listing service called Grubhub that was in Chicago. And so we reached out and we said, hey, like, let's partner. Like, We have this great technology. You can use your phone. You can order stuff. We had built a ton of tech to be able to integrate into point of sale systems because mm -hmm. in the stadiums and arenas, they're all interconnected. You can't just like send stuff to a fax machine. It's got to go into this central mm. repository so that people can get paid out and the team can get what their piece is. Everyone yeah, has to keep right. eyes on everyone else yeah. to make sure they're not getting cheated out of those hot dog or right. beer sales. Everybody's got a piece. Totally. So we had all those integrations and we had a bunch of patents and we ended up you know, meeting with them to partner and they wanted the technology exclusively. And he said, well, we can't give it to you exclusive. We have all these other partnerships. And they said, well, what if we just merge the two companies together and we can go after this space as like, one combined entity. And was this before Grubhub had gone public? Is this, this is way before. Way this before. is spring of 2011. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had just raised a round of money. And you know, literally the day before we went into this meeting with Grubhub, we had just closed. And by that Sunday, I had a term sheet from them to buy the business. Great. And I was 25 and kind of never looked back. So I, a bunch of questions are parking right <laughs> So first is, where did the idea of applying to Accelerate slash Techstars, where did that come into your mind? Oh, yeah. Because there's, there's a lot of the people that are going to listen to this probably understand the, the sort of ethos of Silicon Valley and raising venture capital and tech startups and blah, blah, blah. But the, hopefully there are some people out there that this is new to. And like, that's a different mindset, right? There's, there's starting a company and then there's starting a company that, you're seeking to really scale, like different risk profiles, different energy levels. Like how did you come up with Accelerate slash Techstars? So in my case, it was really strange because I had a friend from undergrad who was at University of Chicago booth and we would constantly talk about the business. I mean, he was just this guy, David Ward, who you know, was an executive at Amazon now. You know, David would constantly give ideas and really support me a ton as a founder. And he says, you know, hey, we got this program here. They were just advertising at Booth hmm. called Accelerate Labs. Okay. I think you should do it. I said, okay, well, what's the catch? He says, well, they take 5% of your company. I said, oh, that sounds like a scam, right? And at that point, I had met with a lot of people who would say, oh, I'll help you raise money for 2% or 3% sure. of how much I raise. And and it became really clear to me that those were kind of just grifters. Those were not like serious people. And so this felt a lot like that. And so my response to David was, well, look, if you fill out the application, like maybe I'll come to the interview, but I'm not going to waste time on this. Like we have clients to sign. We have these partnerships with Micros and Radiant, these major point of sale providers. Like this is a waste of time. Yeah. And so David, to his credit, man. He applied for you. He applied for me. Huh? He did the whole application. And then, you know, when we get the call that we are, you know, have an interview, I was kind of like, ah, I'm busy right now. I don't think I have time. And he said, look, I put my name on this, like my reputation. Yeah. You got to at least show up. Like it's the least you can do. And so I showed up to this call with Sam and Troy, like basically expecting to blow them off. Right. Just like, yeah. Okay. What do you guys want? Like, you know, we're good. We don't need anything. And they gave a very compelling pitch and a very compelling approach of what they could do. The way I would describe it is 
most founders think that the problems in their business are money problems. They think if I just have more cash, then like everything will be fine and up and to the right. And they don't realize that capital is incredibly efficient, right? There's one thing that capital loves, it's to make more capital. And so like if capital's not coming into your business, it's almost always there's something else wrong, right? That there's something impaired about the business that's preventing capital from wanting to find a home there. And that was the thing I think that Sam and Troy understood was you need to come and spend time with us so that we can debug what's wrong with the business. And then fundraising will be the byproduct of that, but that's not necessarily the goal of you coming in here. And so I had a chance to talk to some of the other founders that had worked with. One was David Lieb, who did Bump. Yep, sure. And who actually, ironically, I saw years Another YC grad. Yeah, he's a YC now. He's a partner now. And, you know, they did bump, you know, you bump the two devices together and you transfer information. They raised a bunch of cash and- There's uh, a lot of cash. Yeah. I remember that one. They ended up getting bought by Google, becoming Google Photos. And uh, David had a great career there. And then, you know, was obviously at, at YC now, but I had a chance to talk to him and he was amazing and said, look, Sam and Troy are awesome. Like you should totally do this. If, you know, if I were to do Accelerator again, I'd give them 10%, not 5%. Those are pretty profound, strong words, you know, from another founder. The other was the team from Next Big Sound. Hmm. They also had a really strong review of, you know, Troy and Sam. And so I said, okay, let's try it. Worst comes to worst, you know, maybe our business doesn't work out and I go work for one of these other really smart founders. And so it just seemed like, the right thing to do. Went up there and had an amazing experience. I mean, it literally changed my life, you know? So. I mean, it's so interesting to me because, you know, I think I see the student, the kids out here that grow up out here and, and sort of are just kind of exposed to the startup thing, or you see the kids at Stanford, especially 10 years ago or 15 years ago, there wasn't the same awareness outside of this little bubble about what this thing, this, this startup company, you know, little piece of a big pie versus <laughs> big piece of a little pie, venture capital, like good for you for just yeah. having that awareness. And, and uh, I mean, good for Sam and Troy for they introducing it to you. And, but that's such a cool journey. It's such an unusual path in. And yet, in my mind, you're sort of now, you're like the, the nucleus of this. Like, you know, I, it's, somehow it's wild. I, somehow I've managed to work my way into the center. I, I think it has changed a lot for good and bad. Yeah. Like at that time, I knew one VC. Right. There was a guy, Phil Furneaux, Borealis Ventures, I want to say, hmm. in New Hampshire. This guy went to business school with my father. It's the only VC I ever knew of or heard of or anything along those lines. And uh, was very, very kind to take a pitch from me and sort of give me feedback and all those kinds of things. But I think part of the challenge for founders nowadays is because there's more information and because it's more widespread, in many ways, they can think that they're further along than they are. They think that they know more than they do. Mm. And I think it's compounded by the fact that when we were building Fango, it was really hard you know, to get a business started But once you got it going, it was a lot easier to grow it, right? Like clicks on Facebook were cheap. Hmm. Google, you could, you know, index very highly, like relatively easy. And at some point, though, it switched where now it's really easy to spin up, you know, a server. You can go to AWS and like you could be up and running in days, right? Right. You use Squarespace for your website. You don't have to code anything. You use Zapier for your integrations. But now it's really hard to grow. And so you can do a lot to simulate success early in that business and not have to expend a lot of resources. And so you you see a lot of companies now where they feel like they've got a lot and they sort of have a little swag, like they've got a lot. But when you sort of pull back the hood, you realize it's- Business is still missing. Yeah, it's still a lot of like bubble gum and paper clips. And so I think part of the reason why we were successful is because we had an intellectually honest appreciation for where we were. Mm -hmm. We were able to sort of come to grips with it And that helped us plot the path to where we wanted to be. And so it's one of those things I encourage founders now is to be real with yourself, be real with your investors, because we don't bet on companies. We partner with them. The idea is that we're in this together. You win, we win. Right. And so there's no point in BSing us any more than us BSing you. Yeah. I mean, I think the most miserable emotion you can feel is when you bring on an investor that has a false perception of what they just jumped into. Totally. Because that's just a recipe for acrimony for years to come. 
And frankly, I don't think I can point to any big successes that had that as a semblance of the starting point for an investor. Not like even the most controversial or sort of flamboyant or volatile founders that have been successful still had and have very honest relationships with their investors. Like otherwise it just, it does not work. You have to, Yeah. you know, I think about it like you have multiple fronts to fight on as a founder, right? You've got your employees that you've got to keep happy. Maybe mm-hmm. fights with your co-founder and conflicts there. You have competitors who like always, always hope that you die your- quickly, you know, and customers that want something. Totally. They want money back or they want to pay less money. And then you've got your investors. And, you know, if you're a really good founder, you can probably fight on two of those fronts at a time. More than that, you're going down. You're down. <laughs> and so, like, in many ways, you have to think about, like, how do I neutralize some of these fronts so that I can focus on the things that are not negotiable? Competition, not negotiable. You have right. to fight there. Yep. Right? And so, you got to pick what's your other thing going to be. And if it's your investor that you've got to watch your back on. And what kind of value does that even bring to your business if you win that fight? None. Zero. You know, so you end up going to Grubhub and you worked there for about a year, right? Yeah. And so it ran that, innovation. And the head of innovation and that to just run the timeline when they went public and sort of where they were during that yeah. year. So when they went public, I was actually in business school. Okay. So when I was doing the deal with Grubhub, I had a very different view of myself and like my role and sort of like what happens in like M&A transactions. And I thought to myself that, what you get off the other side is this happy mix of like two companies. It's like this beautiful blend, the best of both worlds, <laughs> it's you know, chocolate and the peanut butter. And, <laughs> right. and that's not what happens, right? Like somebody gets bought and someone does the buying. And when the dust settles, you realize that this thing that you index really heavily on, which in my case was freedom, you don't have a lot of, right? Your opinion becomes optional. And I think the thing that was really frustrating for me was there were a lot of commitments that I made in order to get our company to where it was. And I didn't have the power anymore to, to follow through to on follow those. through on those things. You do what you say you're going to do. And then you're in this position where you don't you have can't. the power to do that. And that just ate me up. It was frustrating. I probably reflected that when I was at work and in the office. And then you combine that with some of the hubris and swag, right? That comes from stepping up to the plate effectively for my first company and hitting yeah. a quote unquote home run. Right. And in my mind, I thought, well, you know what? I don't need this. Like I can just leave and I'll do it again. You know, why not? And I've certainly learned since then it's much harder than so easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, much harder than maybe <laughs> I thought. Fingers. You know, I was really lucky because I had, you know, these mentors like Sam and Troy and I went to Sam and I said, you know, I'm not super happy. Like I just feel like I've lost control over you know, what my day-to-day looks like, what I'm working on, and so on. Sam says, well, I think maybe it's time for you to go to business school. Love and uh, <laughs> I said, where should I go to school, Sam? He's like, I don't know, maybe Stanford. And I said, Sam, I'll never get into Stanford. And he says, well, what do I know? You know, fine, <laughs> if you don't want to apply, then don't apply. That's, you got Sam yeah, down pretty well there. <laughs> that's Sam for, I'm not going to argue with you, right. but... I'm usually the smartest guy in the room. And I'm giving you I'm my just, opinion. And I'm, I'm giving you, yeah, I'm giving you a hint. I'm usually the smartest guy in the room. You can take it if you want. And I knew Sam well enough to know, like, when I do what he asked me to do, like, good things happen. And it's another one of those things about having great mentors that you have that level of trust that's like, I can't see it, but maybe you can. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to trust and obey. You know, Sam said, here's the deal. You need to go and take the GMAT and you need to, you know, get these essays written and so on. And we decided that I was going to apply to business school 11 days before the application was due. Hmm. So in 11 days, I wrote my application, got my referral letters and Good did work. the GMAT. Wow. Turned it in second round of, uh, at Stanford spring of 2012 and ended up getting in. Yeah. And at that time, had you ever spent any time out in Palo Alto or nothing? Never been. I out came here. out there once to raise money, and yeah. it was a horrible experience. Right? <laughs> I didn't know how to pitch well, and you know, I pitched uh, Emily Melton. She was at Mayfield at the time. Hmm. Charles Moldau, DFJ, and you know, it was all kind of lackluster. It kind of just didn't hit the mark. I wasn't ready. I realized in hindsight. And they were all very gracious and so on. Emily was great. She gave some great feedback and so on. 
And it was cool to see some of these people later because a lot of them went to Stanford. And so I ended up running into them at various like events and so like years later. And at that point, you know, Grubhub, we had gone public and we just had great returns and so on. So it was cool to see the stories sort of come mm-hmm. full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So you went yeah. to GSB, graduated a couple of years later. And what would you say the most valuable things that came out of your Stanford education? The most valuable thing, I think, for many students at Stanford is a class called OB374, which is Organizational Behavior and Interpersonal Dynamics. Hmm. And it's colloquially known as touchy-feely. I think the big insight that Stanford has in the business school is for most of the students who attend, the limiting factor for them is not going to be their intelligence, their skill sets, or opportunity. The limiting factor will be them. Hmm. It will be literally their own mentality and how much people want to work with them and help them and so on. Right? The higher you move up in an organization, the less you can tell people what to do, the more you have to work with people, the more they have to want to you know, be a part of your team. And so learning to understand or learning how to, to sort of manage those interpersonal dynamics, understand how you're motivated, how others are motivated, what really matters to you is a huge piece of that curriculum. And I think that was the big unlock was for all intents and purposes at that point in my life, I was retired. Like I didn't really have to work or do anything at that point, but I was also really unhappy. I just was- You wanted to do something. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And so Stanford was this huge opportunity to sort of refocus and to see what else was out there, nonprofits and private equity and venture capital. I had no understanding of any of these things. I knew engineering hmm. and I knew, you know, my time at, at Grubhub and sort of the early stages of the business building. And so it let me see a lot of other things and meet a lot of people who are working in different parts of the ecosystem. And I'm very, very grateful for it. You know, it's interesting. We, we run across so many people out here that have had early success, right? They, they hit it big early in life. And sometimes it's because they're the entrepreneur and they started the business and the business was successful, as is the case with you. Sometimes it's they join the right company and ride it up. You know, and, and so it's, it's a unique and very sort of luxurious position to be in when you're sort of, you know, 30 or sub 30 and financially set for a while. But you said an interesting thing, which is you weren't happy. And I hear that often, right? It, a lot of people, a lot of young people sort of have this ambition to make money. And, <laughs> totally. then, and then when they make it, they're like, wait, the journey was fun, not the destination. And how do I get back to that journey? How do I replicate that journey? And, and so you come out of business school, what was your mindset and how did that you know, guide you into sort of the next thing that you did? Yeah, I think the biggest change in my mentality was being more purposeful about how I spent my time, my energy, my talent. You know, one of the things I realized, you know, with Grubhub and and sort of Fango merging into Grubhub, when you're successful at this startup thing, you make a lot of money for a lot of people around you, employees, for your investors, for your board, you name it. And you have a lot of agency around who that money goes to, mm-hmm. who that value goes to. And you can choose to apply your effort and your energy, you know, to create resources and create money and, and opportunity for people who share values that you share, or you cannot. Mm-hmm. You can be ambivalent about it and just say like, oh, I'll take whoever writes me a check and I'll work with whoever and wherever I can make money. I realized that that was the thing that made me unhappy was hmm. that, if I was using my time and energy to create products I didn't care about, to serve customers that were, didn't really matter and to put money in people's pockets that didn't really care about me or my community or that kind of thing, that was not that fun. was sort of the third rail. That was not interesting for me. It was really demotivating. And so in many ways, kind of bring it full circle in some ways, like lobby represents a lot of those values and the same values that I had around like, what is the impact of this? Like, what is my impact on these people? Like, what matters in terms of this community and this relationship? And how is it reflected in founders that I'm putting money into? Even when I was writing personal checks in the companies, I and mean, there are a bunch of companies where it's like, I don't totally get this idea, but I get you. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you're going to run through walls. And so I think you deserve a shot. I'm going to write you a check. And those have been some of my best investments, right? And so... I think that's the piece that changed is being more human capital oriented, both in building and in terms of investing than I was prior to business school. Yeah. Time and time again, 
it is clear that, yes, you have to have a great product. Yes, you have to have a, a market that's growing or going through turmoil that's large enough. But time and time again, it's the people. And, you know, whether it becomes a billion-dollar outcome or just a really great outcome, that's, I believe, there's a lot of luck in that one. But great people find that path totally. more often than totally. not. And what makes a person great, which is, you know, kind of the gist of this whole podcast is to try to sort of recognize that great in one person can be totally different than great in another, but it is about finding those people. And then the joy of this job, and I'd say the joy of Silicon Valley, because it's not just being a VC. It could be as a lawyer, I enjoyed it, or as an entrepreneur, I enjoyed it. It's working with these great people, like yeah. being around them and appreciating their strengths and their superpowers and kind of, you know, faking that you have your own superpowers in my instance. <laughs> When we have our, our offsites as lobby capital and we think about sort of who we are and what our mission is and sort of how we differentiate, time and time again, it's this human capital thing. It really is. That's the big unlock. I feel like the new age of founders, they're more deliberate about it too. They're coming in and saying like, okay, look, this $5 million spends the same, whether it comes from this name, right. that name, or the other. Who's actually going to care about what happens to me or care about the things that I care about or care about my values? And I think that's where they're making the decisions, or at least it's where they should be from my perspective. And so, I mean, to your point, it's like if you dig deep enough on any problem, it's people problem. You know, Eric says something that I just love. I love, I love it. He says it with his Chicago accent, which makes it even more <laughs> endearing. But he said, you know, people ask us if we're founder friendly. And the answer is no, we're, we're founder authentic. I love that because it's so, maybe it's so Eric, but I think it's lobby. I think it's a good entrepreneur does not look for his or her or their resources to just be yes men yep. or yes people. Yep. They're looking for a very accurate mirror that allows them to see themselves, see their strengths and see their weaknesses. And that, if, if we're good at our job, I think that's what we do the best at. I think that's right. I'm not here to be your friend. I'm right. here to help you. Mm -hmm. And it's what Sam did for you. Like Sam Absolutely. didn't sugarcoat stuff. No, Sam didn't. No, <laughs> never. You know, when I got the offer from Grubhub to do the deal, I remember Sam pulling me into his office and I'm super excited to tell him, Sam, we got this offer to sell the business. And Sam says, well, there's two times you sell your business. The first is when you're overvalued. And the second is when you're completely fucked. <laughs> now, which one are you? And I remember sitting there saying like, that's not the response I was <laughs> expecting. <here." laughs> and being relatively perplexed that like, I don't know. I think we might be overvalued. Yes. Sam never pulled punches, no, which I appreciate to this day. I love that. Yeah. I love that binary <laughs> perspective. That's fantastic. Okay. So you finish up B-School. You've got this sort of sharper vision and sharper understanding of what you're interested in, what you're not interested in. When did YC come into it? Sort of lay out that next path. Yeah. So I decided I was going to build another company. And it's kind of like getting the band back together in a way, because what we were building was marketing automation tools for restaurants. And was it the same people? Were these co-founders so, and early employees the yeah, same? Yeah, exactly. So my co-founder was the first engineer I hired when we were building Fango and hmm. part of what became you know, Grubhub. You know, he had moved out here and was leading a team at VMware. And so it was kind of like, hey, let's storyboard a couple of things. Let's work on a couple of projects. And we had built a bunch of little stuff on the side. Mm -hmm. And we decided to build this company, what became Zero Storefront. And, you know, I wasn't going to do an accelerator. It was kind of like, well, I think we've gotten what we need out of Techstars and in sort of Accelerate Labs. And for my co-founder, he hadn't had that experience. Mm -hmm. He had been in Accelerate Labs, but really as an employee. So I think he was kind of insulated from a lot of, yeah. you know, the, the value. And I really wanted him to have that and he wanted it for himself. And so we decided we were going to do it, even though we had 2 million bucks at the time, hmm. you know, it was kind of like, okay, let's do YC. I think it'll be fun. And like, this was 2000. This is 2019. 2019. And was there ever in your mind, I mean, I am in awe of YC and I've, I've had sort of the good fortune to invest in a bunch of YC companies. I've gotten to know in a light way, Paul and Jessica. And I, yeah. I just think it's, Oh, I mean, to me, it's the preeminent accelerator program. And so it's almost like going to Harvard or Stanford, or yeah. maybe it is, maybe it's even more so like that. Was that a part of your thought or was it, no, Hey, this is, what do I need for this specific business? Like how much of it was specific to your startup versus, Hey, this is a cool experience to go through. Yeah. It was just another seam that to grow into. I actually had no sense of how this would play in the grand scheme of things, just like many of the other decisions, right? It just seems net positive and yeah. generally in the right direction. Mm -hmm. 
And it ended up being way more impactful than I thought it would be, but also for reasons that were different than I thought. Okay. Right. So one example was I made a ton of investments when in OIC. I mean, I had cash and, you know, I had that kind of flexibility and many of those investments have done extremely well, right? Certainly better than our own company did. I think in, well, we'll see, but right. I, yeah, at least on paper, much better than, you know, our own company did. There's this book, it's called Finite Infinite Games by a guy named James Cars. And, you know, sort of the TLDR on it is there are two types of games in the world. There's finite games where the objective is to end the game. And there are infinite games where the objective is to keep the game going. So like a finite game would be something like Monopoly, right? Where you take mm-hmm. the other person's money and the game is over. And infinite game would be something like Tag. where Dungeons you, and Dragons. Yeah, I tag you, right. you tag me. And right. There's not really an end to it. And what you find is that really good things happen when you apply a finite game strategy to a finite game or an infinite game strategy to an infinite game. Hmm. But really bad things happen when they're inverted, right? So you're playing Monopoly and you decide, I'm never going to charge anyone and the game goes on forever. Everyone gets annoyed. It's not very fun, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're playing tag and someone says, let's just try to break everyone's legs. (laughs) And then, you know, the game will be over and it's not very fun for people either. And in many ways, I looked at my post GSB career is being this infinite game Hmm. where the strategy was one where you were trying to keep the game going and you were making decisions with that long-term perspective in mind where I had no idea what the value of YC was going to be over the next two months or Mm -hmm. the next two years or even the next 10 years. But what would it be over the next 25 or 50 years? Hmm. And in my mind, it was a very obvious answer that it was going to be net positive so why not? Right. Worst case scenario here is I'll have a tremendous amount of fun, meet a bunch of brilliant people and eat some pizza. Right. A lot of pizza. That's a win. <laughs> totally. I'll take it. Right. right. And so it ended up being a great experience for us. You know, the company didn't do as well as Fango did, you know, financially, but we made a bunch of great friends. We made a bunch of great investments. After that, Joshi and I started doing regular investing in YC companies. I think at this point we've done over 30, 35, hmm. something around along those lines. And we love it, you know, because we understand the perspective. We understand how to build a business. We understand, you know, the authenticity around being founders. And there's a lot of people that have lots of harsh things to say about your business, but have never built anything. And I always resented that as a mm-hmm. founder, you know, someone that's sort of afraid to be in the arena, you know, telling you that you're not fighting hard enough or, yep. you know, that you don't have what it takes. And so, we love being able to bring that perspective to the table. It's awesome. Awesome. All right. As we near the tail end of this one, so you sort of eventually, you start this company, you sort of operate it. The, how did the tech stars, you know, you end up running tech stars Bay area. How did that overlap? And, and then, um, you know, what was yeah, the journey? Totally. So, you know, 2019, you know, COVID hits, we're running zero storefront. We managed to pull the company out of the tailspin that came from restaurants getting just, Absolutely pelted and hammered during COVID. And we end up finding an acquisition with thanks. They came in and bought the business and the team and the technology. And we're able to to really find a good home uh, that had some meaningful upside, you know, for the team and everyone else. And so it was kind of sitting around, like, you know, not doing a whole lot, working on the transition with thanks, but you know, things were moving pretty quickly there. And so it was clear that I wasn't going to be needed, you know, to uh, keep pushing the business forward. And so around the same time, I actually was catching up with a friend, a guy named Ethan Austin from Outside Ventures. And Ethan had gone through Accelerate Labs with me. He actually was a founder in that program, along with Sean Harper from Kin, uh, Shiel Manat from A Better Tomorrow Ventures, yeah. uh, Sue Kim, who runs Brilliant.org with the Chamath. I mean, there's just a totally stacked Great. You know, crew, right? And so uh, catching up with Ethan and he says, hey, you know, Techstars is, you know, thinking about expanding into the Bay Area. It was, this is going to be their first program, you know, in the Bay Area. Maybe you should consider running it. And I thought, oh, that could be interesting. Like, maybe I'll go volunteer. That was I thought to yeah. myself. And so I ended up talking to the team. They said, well, you know, hey, we're not necessarily looking for volunteers, but, you know, if you're interested in the job of running Techstars for Silicon Valley, we'd be very interested in having that conversation with you. So I ended up interviewing. It made me an offer to join the team. And I thought to myself, what a great opportunity to come full circle, to basically be Sam and to be Troy. Yeah, right. Or someone else. And, you know, Techstars, 
unique in that the batch sizes are so much smaller. There's only 12 companies in a batch. So you hmm. really sort of have to know each company extremely well. And it tends to resonate with a different type of founder than what you commonly see in Y Combinator. I kind of think about it like undergrad and grad school, where it's like an undergrad, you sort of have like an RA and they help you move your stuff in and right. give you advice about life and like you have mandatory classes and things to help you like do well for where you are. And then when you get to grad school, you're like, great, you're here. Graduation's in two years. Good luck. And YC is kind of like the latter where hmm. it's like the resources are there, but you know, it's very much self-started. You got to kind of have to like figure it out on your own and sort of grab resources as you need them because no one's going to sort of spoon feed you. Mm -hmm. And so Techstars, I think, represented certainly what I needed when I came through with sort of Techstars and Accelerator Labs. Yeah. And so the opportunity to do that for someone else was super appealing. And that's really what, what drew me in. I'm so interested in, I've heard about Techstars for a long time. I've even helped out in LA and I've helped yeah. out with Sam, but I'm not sure I understand their business. Like- <laughs> And, and, and when, you know, the crazy thing is hearing that Techstars came to Silicon Valley after Techstars had been established elsewhere, it's almost like, wow, <laughs> I didn't expect that. I didn't know that that's, I thought it started here. And yet coming here to the Silicon Valley where there's so many other alternatives, it was not an easy challenge. That must have been no. Herculean, frankly. It was. it was quite difficult. I think I was fortunate because I had a lot of street cred. Right at that point, like I had built a company, came part of Grubhub, we went public. We had built, you know, subsequent companies that were acquired. I went through YC, YC I went GSP, through Techstars, right? we went through Google for startups with a different company that we had you know, a great outcome with. You know, was teaching Startup Garage at Stanford, advising the roll-off Botha, sort of in, in, um, Botha Chen innovation program. So I had a lot of cred that when I, you know, went to a founder and said, you know, what you're going to get here is going to be different than what you get in 500 startups or in, you know, pair VC or in Y Combinator, but you're also going to get me. Yeah. And that, that went a long way because if you got me, it means you also got Hornick and you also got, right. you know, Sam and Troy and all these other people that had become part of my community yeah. in the same way that we emphasize community here as a firm. So anyways, I think that was sort of the antidote to some of the flashy brand names and the bigger checks is that, you just had this authentic relationship with the founder. Founder authenticity, Absolutely. once again. Absolutely. It's so interesting. This I think of it as a contagion, this sort of entrepreneurial contagion that, you know, again, 15, 20 years ago, it was probably contained to Silicon Valley and a few other markets, Seattle, Austin, Texas, maybe a little bit of Boulder, what have you. And now it really is ubiquitous. And if you even look at our portfolio so far at Lobby Capital, you know, we've got companies in the Bay Area for sure, but we have a Vancouver company, Syracuse company, Chicago company. I mean, literally we have a Cairo, Egypt company. Yeah, that's right. I, I just feel like this contagion of sort of entrepreneurship and particularly tech entrepreneurship seems to continue to expand. And it gets me just incredibly fired up because I think it truly is the best way for a really brilliant person to exercise their business prowess, their creativity, their drive, their ambition. I know we're running to the end of our, our podcast. You know, you sort of got dragged into this lobby capital thing, <laughs> this vortex. I don't know if I got dragged, you know, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, absolutely, we're so, could not be more <laughs> thrilled that we trapped you and we captured you. But you're now a full-time VC and, and you're sort of seeing a ton of deals. You've got an amazing network of things coming at you. You know, if you look forward five or 10 years, sort of what has continued to keep Colin happy, energized? Yeah. I think the biggest insight for me has been that there's a certain amount of joy that comes from you making a mistake and learning from it and not making that same mistake again. Right. It's like pride in that and sense of improvement and so on. Then there's this whole other level. It's like when you're able to democratize that learning such that other people are able to avoid the mistakes. Right. That you can, you can benefit from right. what and you're And make new mistakes, right? Like <laughs> different ones. And I think that's the biggest legacy for me like in this industry and in this space is being able to come in and say, you know, I've taken a company and sold it and gone through IPO process. I've taken companies that have had soft landings. I've had ones blow up in my face. I've gotten into knockout fights with my co-founders. I've, 
you know, built technology too soon. I've built technology too late. I've hired salespeople like that were the wrong person. I've had to fire hundreds of people in a week, you know, and deal with, you know, all the repercussions of that and, and so on. And so to me, it goes beyond just deploying capital because right? lots of people can deploy capital. It's more about deploying knowledge. Like how do you deploy the knowledge that helps make the capital useful? Yeah. That helps you increase your probability of success such that you have the kind of inflection points that I had, right? That were life-changing for me and for my family and for my mm -hmm. kids and my kids' kids. I think that is the legacy of what we do. It's not just writing checks. There's right. a lot of people that can do that. If I fast forward, I think that is the biggest impact that I can have. And also, I think during that process, maintaining our values and maintaining that approach that it really is about the people, right? You're going to make money on some deals. You're going to lose money on other deals. But at the end of the day, if you bet on high quality people who have shared values that you have, ultimately you're going to be net positive. And I think that's the piece that I want to index on. I want people to look back on and say, yeah, that was a positive bet. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, Colin, it's so fun. I could continue to talk with you yeah. for hours and I, <laughs> and I will have the good fortune of being able to do that because you're my partner. Um, but I think we call this one to an end. So Colin Walls, awesome. Congratulations and welcome to Lobby Capital. Thanks for spending this last hour or so with me. We have so many more conversations ahead of us. I can't wait for those to unfold. Can't wait. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.